0: Hello listeners, as an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And, if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.
1: Well, Stafford, Young, and Cernan are on their way, taking off from Cape Kennedy now, just about over the coast of Africa, 115 miles high, and traveling at 17,400 miles an hour. They come around the Earth, make uh, two loops of the Earth, and then... Across from where I am over here, about over the Pacific, just uh, at the edge of the western edge of Australia, they will fire that third stage engine again. It's fired successfully the first time to get them into orbit. Now, its 225,000-pound thrust engine must fire again. And that will be at 3.22 this afternoon, Eastern Daylight Time, or just two hours and seven minutes or eight minutes from now. When that engine fires, it speeds them up.
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 192 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10, Translunar Injection, and First Docking. We left off last week just after Apollo 10 achieved Earth orbit. The next two orbits were spent in system review with Houston and the astronauts checking to see if their craft was ready for Translunar Injection. Here's Mr. Cronkite, Bill Stout, and Leo Crump explaining what was happening.
1: Out at Downey, California, Bill Stout and Leo Crump uh, are uh, prepared to tell us just what happens now in
2: getting into that Translunar flight. Gentlemen? Well, that's certainly the next big decision in this flight, Walter, the next critical maneuver, whether to go for the moon, to leave the Earth orbit and head out into space. What will decide that, Leo? And what do they do?
3: Well, Bill, during these parking orbits, the the crew have been very busy checking out all the spacecraft systems to make sure they're functioning properly. At the same time, all the NASA engineers back at the Manned spacecraft center have been monitoring the system performance on telemetry to make sure everything is functioning properly. If all systems are go, about on the on the second orbit when the spacecraft is over Australia, the S four B will be reignited by a ground command. The S-4B will burn about 5 minutes and 22 seconds, which will accelerate the spacecraft from its present velocity. It will accelerate at another 7,000 miles an hour, which will give the spacecraft sufficient velocity to escape the Earth's gravitational field, allow it to coast toward the moon and be captured by the moon's gravitational field.
2: So if everything checks out, they go for the moon near the end of the second orbit. If there were problems, they could go one more orbit and then make the jump out, couldn't they? Uh,
3: that's right. Uh, ideally, we would do our translunar insertion on the second orbit. However, if there are problems or if something has to be ironed out, we do have the option of going another Earth parking orbit
2: and doing our translunar insertion the next time around. And if they go, they'll head out into space, and a bit later they'll break apart the command service module from the Saturn 4 b and we'll have our first look at the LEM, won't we? Yes,
3: that transposition and docking should be really spectacular at three hours into the mission on the color TV now let's go to Scott McLeod and Nelson Benton at Grumman it's still about a couple of hours before the crew will even get a look at the limb that they're carrying that bill when uh, they do dock with it but it's going to be even longer before Stafford Cernan uh, Stafford and Cernan have a look at the actual inside of the lunar module Scott when uh, do they actually see the inside of the bird for the first time in flight? Well the first time they do crawl into the lunar module is after they've attained lunar orbit and then Gene Cernan will be the first one in and that would be late on Wednesday evening. He takes a trip inside uh, looks around goes back then he and Stafford go in together the next day. Yes that's correct. So Walter for right now uh, Lim is just riding and will be just riding for some time just sitting, waiting to be looked at.
0: Back in Houston, Flight Director Lunny checked with his men at the monitors in the control room, and they all voted to fire for translunar injection. Now I want to play a clip of the CBS correspondence explaining what the astronauts were expected to experience during the translunar injection burn.
1: Bill Stout and Leo Krupp, the test engineer at North American Rockwell in Downey, California, California, can tell us what's going to happen as they fire off this uh, third stage engine and go into translunar uh, trajectory. Gentlemen?
2: Walter, Leo was just telling me that even though they're hurtling through space and have been weightless for a time, that firing you talk about is going to make quite a change in the feeling inside the cabin. What will it be like, Leo? Well, Bill, for the last two and a half hours, the crew has been in a weightless
3: or zero G condition. And as soon as they ignite the S 4B or the S 4B is ignited by the ground signal, they will experience an acceleration which will be just like you're sitting in your chair right now, about a 1G acceleration. So they, for 5 minutes and 22 seconds while the S-4B is firing, they will be back in almost an Earth environment again in, in the cabin. As soon as the thrust is terminated, however, they'll go right back into the 0G or the weightless condition. And uh, they will be in this condition then for the rest of the trip to the moon except for the short periods when they may be firing their thrusters for midcourse corrections. But in effect, it's a return to that feeling of gravity almost a return to earth for a moment there for about five minutes and 22 seconds they'll be back to approximately a 1g uh condition now as soon as the as soon as the burn is completed uh, tom stafford is going to swap seats with john young john young right now is in the center couch and uh, tom
2: stafford is in the left couch and he'll do almost all the flying from here on in this mission right that's right
0: walter at T plus two hours, 33 minutes, the S-4B stage was ignited once again. Here's the clip.
4: Booster engineer says the Saturn is go. Right on time. Roger,
5: copy. Fuel lead must start with good
1: acceleration.
5: Roger. Right on. Roger. We're we're on We're on the way. Roger, we confirm.
1: That's it. The third stage fired. Now if it keeps firing for five minutes, a little over.
5: Stand now Houston, you have
1: some more looks good. Reverse that speed to... 24,275 miles per hour for a three-day trip to the moon. The second spaceship is on the way to the moon.
4: 26,400 feet per second velocity now.
5: Captain Houston in one minute, you're looking
1: great. Roger, one minute, everything looks good on board. It's Tom Stoppard. Cool, matter-of-fact voice from these skilled test pilots now undergoing the greatest test of their career. Roger.
4: Twenty-seven thousand five
1: hundred feet per second. That's about three fourths of the velocity they need, or roughly twenty thousand miles an hour. They need twenty-four thousand two hundred seventy-five miles an hour. They started out at seventeen thousand four hundred. With the S4B third stage shut down at this point, the spacecraft would continue into a high elliptical orbit around the Earth. Roger. That was Gene Cernan. 29,000 feet per second.
4: Who's Gene? Roger, copy, Tom. Tom Stafford
1: reporting three-quarters of 1G. 1G is Earth's gravity. That is the weight of a body on Earth. Houston coming
5: up uh, three minutes. The trajectory looks great. Three minutes, everything looks good,
0: Charlie. At three minutes into the translunar injection burn, the cabin began to vibrate with a strange buzzing sensation that the men both heard and felt. Something was wrong with the booster. Okay, Stafford radioed to Houston. We're getting a little bit of high-frequency vibrations in the cabin. Nothing to worry about. Those words were for the benefit of mission control. In reality, Stafford was sure the mission was over, and so were his crewmates. Cernan, in the right-hand seat, was already thinking ahead to the abort maneuver they'd have to perform to get back to Earth. The vibrations worsened until Stafford could barely read the instruments. His heartbeat quickened as he tried to puzzle out what might be happening. The only thing he could think of was a form of aerodynamic shaking that pilots call flutter. If it's bad enough, flutter can rattle an airplane to pieces. But how could flutter occur in a vacuum? Stafford held the abort handle in his left hand. With a twist, he could shut down the booster and end the mission. But he told himself, No way. We've come this far. If she blows, then she blows. The three men held their breath as the nearly six-minute burn continued. Stafford anxiously eyed the computer's velocity readout, which was climbing toward the 35,000-plus feet per second needed to send Apollo 10 to the moon. He said silently, Come on, baby. At last, the booster shut down on time and Apollo 10 was on course. Later, engineers would blame the vibrations, which were well within the spacecraft's design tolerance, on some of the booster's pressure relief valves and would remedy the situation for future missions. Apollo 10's first heart stopper turned out to be a false alarm, but Stafford and his crew understood they could take nothing for granted.
5: All at 10, Houston, we got a predicted cutoff. 2 plus 3, 9 plus 1, zero. 2 plus 3, 9 plus one zero. Two out, right into the sun here. All right.
4: 31,000 feet per second velocity. Present altitude, 123
5: miles. Howdy, right, say go. The F-4B's looking great. All right, Houston, uh, 10 helix, get onward. Okay, we're getting a little high frequency. Say again? We're getting some small... I understand the small, small yaw oscillations, Ten? Negative high frequency vibrations. Uh, awesome. Five. five. minutes, we still have you go, Ten. Uh, Ten Houston in the blind uh, at cutoff. Up telemetry IU to accept. Rico, Roger Rico. We confirm the cutoff. Eight stop four two two point one up telemetry IU to accept. Roger copy. Would you believe that Delta VC reached minus 0.6? Roger, minus 06 on
0: a delta VC. That's beautiful yeah, back, After a shaky but successful S4B burn, Apollo 10 was on the way to the moon. Now let's move on to the docking of the command module with the lunar module. The first order of business was for John Young to move to the command module's pilot seat.
1: We've just heard that uh, Young has moved from the center couch, uh, which as you pointed out a moment ago, Leo, was his position for the blastoff, over into the left-hand seat into the commander's seat. They're on the left where Tom Stafford sat for blastoff. Stafford's now in the center couch and Young is over there flying the spacecraft and getting ready for the transposition and that docking. The ground, just a moment ago, uh, said uh, that uh, to, the, to the spacecraft, we have AOS now until LOS at the moon. There's no backing out now. That meant that they have acquired the signal from uh, the spacecraft to one of the three uh, deep uh, space uh, network stations at either Goldstone, California, Madrid, or uh, in Australia. And uh, that they will now have constant communication until the spacecraft disappears on the far side of the moon on the next Wednesday. About...
0: At T-plus 2 hours, 57 minutes, Apollo 10 was given the order to go with separation. The crew then successfully checked the thrusters on the service module that were required to control the command and service module during the transposition and docking maneuver. Next, the crew was then given the go to arm the pyrotechnic devices that would separate the command and service module from the spacecraft lunar module adapter, also known as the SLA or the SLAW. These panels had protected the lunar module up to this point. At T plus three hours, two minutes, Stafford reported to Houston that separation had been achieved. When Young pulled the command module away from the S-4B, the crew saw the panels that had housed the lunar module drift away. After the command module was flipped around, it was 45 meters away from the third stage, about three times further than intended. But it would take only a little extra fuel to get back for docking. As the command module moved around, the mission controllers on the ground Watch the maneuvers in living color. Now, here's an edited clip of the docking.
4: Apollo 10 is pitching around now, the guidance and control officer says. Pitching around, then we'll come back in and dock with the lunar module. Altitude now 3,580 nautical miles. Velocity is down to 25,401
5: but there goes a panel. Roger. That world is incredible. Really moving? Holy, holy, I sure hope we can show it to you. I really do. Okay, I got the S-4B. Roger. And there goes another panel.
4: Those are the slaw panels that house the lunar module. They've been jettisoned.
5: Well, yeah, I got the world on close circuit here, so we're going to try and get high gain. Roger, standing by. Okay, babe, there's high gain. Uh, the TV is on. I should be uh, coming down to you, and I'll have to adjust it as we come along into the S-4B. Hey, it's beautiful, Jane. We got the uh, black and white now. We a little time to lay on the color. Okay, I'll try adjusting for you. Hey, we got the color now. You're on here, baby. Oh, that's beautiful. Have you got the color? Yes, sir. It's uh, looking gray. I'm sorry it's tilted it a little bit. That's the best I can do with the bracket. Uh, no sweat. We got it right in the center of the screen, Gene. The, it looks like the sun's really bright on it. Uh, tremendously so. The sun's got the S-4, bit the limb uh, sort of blotted out. It's the uh, bright. Charlie, I've got it closed down all the way. Does that uh, help any? Uh, uh, right the uh, in the center of the uh, limb. Now we still got a real couple of real bright bl- bright spots, uh, but it's looking real good in the color. We can see the uh, probe, uh, correction, the drogue. Uh, Gene, it's really looking good. Uh, the uh, it's the silver panels that are reflecting back uh, real brightly. They're awful us right now too. Right, the the resolution is fantastic. You're drifting off just to the right a little bit. Uh, Ten, Houston, uh, you can't believe the picture we're getting. The resolution is really fantastic. I'll tell you, this monitor makes it great. Resolution? I think the color would be beautiful once we can show you the Earth. Right. Ten, Houston, we'd like the uh, uh, Snoopy back if you could give it to us. I'd be glad to. Hey, that's looking great now, except for a couple of fingers there or something. Good resolution, that's what they were. You got your big hands in the way. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I don't know what you did, but they uh, it's a really beautiful now, really great. We're just a little closer. Yeah, yeah the color is great, Gene. Yeah? How's that for the front porch? Oh boy, that's beautiful. Hey, what's that guy doing on the front porch? That's a green man, Gordo. Uh, John estimates 50 feet close, Roger.
4: That was Gordon Cooper, he and Charlie Duke are both on the Capcom console, and that orange platform is the front porch.
5: Charlie, we can't be more than about 5-10 feet of rain. Roger. Uh, ten, it's looking real stable to us. We show you closing slightly. Be docked in a second, I hope. Roger. Uh, ten, uh, Houston, uh, you're looking good. We can see the uh, markings in a rendezvous with it. It looks like you just docked. Roger, got a capture. You fired yep. Roger. Gene, we can re- read the uh, numbers on the LAM right, uh, docking window. Snap, snap, and we're there. Got two grays. Roger. You saw the docking, Charlie. We didn't get any master alarm. Everything looks snug. Roger. Didn't look like there was any, uh, hardly any uh, after do- post-docking oscillations. Jump. OK, barrel's coming off. Roger. Dan, yeah, that's a great picture of the quad. I'll try to okay. take out a quick tour. Where I may have to hold you up for a little bit here. Okay, John's going down to the LAB and I'm going to the left seat now. Roger, Tom.
0: One note from the docking, the estimated distance at the command module's turnaround was reported to have been 150 feet instead of the intended 50 feet. True procedures for this maneuver were based on those for the Apollo 9 and were executed properly. However, a reduced S4b weight from Apollo 9 and the fact that some plus x translation velocity remained when an attempt was made to null the separation rate probably resulted in the increased separation distance. The crew compensated correctly and there was no impact on the mission. With the lunar module still attached to the S-4B third stage and the command module still attached to the lunar module, the next maneuver was spacecraft ejection. Here's the clip.
5: Hello, Apollo 10. Uh, Houston, the uh, S-4B is uh, getting ready to do an auxiliary h- hydraulic pump cycling, which you may feel, and we'll have a non propulsive event in a few minutes also. Okay. Uh, Roger. I'd reckon that uh, possibly 10, latches 10, 3, 3, and 4 are probably going to be one-shot cockers from the position of the bungee, but, uh, but they all are automatically made. Roger. We copy, John.
0: That was Young, indicating all latches were engaged solidly.
5: Hello, Houston, Apollo 10. Go ahead, Tom. Okay. When we pressurized the limb, the mylar all blew out of the tunnel hatch there, and we got a spacecraft that's got no insulation in it here. It looks like it didn't leave a big enough hole. The is freeway when the wind over the tunnel insulation used to blow out. Roger copy, you lost every bit of the mylar on the back side of the hatch? Yeah. Not every bit, but a whole no, bunch just, of them. just a little of it, Charlie. Okay. <laughs> but of course they do away with it on 107 sub. So okay. You got uh, you got lots of pieces floating
0: around? Well a few. Okay. Just a little small. When the lunar module cabin was first depressurized, the thermal coating on the command module hatch came off in pieces. The insulation blanket vent holes were plugged, producing the damage. One possibility is that the pre-flight baking of the hatch at 900 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 hours weakened the insulation to the extent that internal pieces of insulation broke loose and plug the holes during tunnel depressurization. The maneuver continues.
5: Hello Apollo 10, uh, Houston. Uh, We still show the EDS power on and the uh, EDS breakers closed. Uh, Would you uh, turn the power off and open the breakers if you got a second? Okay, power coming off. Hello Houston, uh, this is 10. We've got the logic on and we're standing by for your golf power arm. Roger, stand by. You have our go for uh, power arm, Dan. Okay, power are coming up and on. Roger. Ken, uh, Houston, the S4B is uh, still venting non-propulsively.
4: We have TV coming up again right now. Uh, command module, service module, and the LAM have just separated from the S4B. Houston, we're
5: maneuvering around right now. I the S4B. Uh, going in a step attitude. Roger. Okay, Houston, uh, we can see the 4B now. Roger. Uh, Out of which window, Tom? John's looking at it out the hatch window. Roger.
0: With the command and service module and the lunar module separated from the S-4B, it was now time to begin the coast to the moon. Salutations from the snowy foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 192 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 10 Translunar Injection and First Docking. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and more on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the Orion donors. There are six so far this year. Orion donors give $100 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Orion donors. Well, we are on course for our second manned visit to the moon, and I feel fine. (laughs) What did you think about the nerves of Tom Stafford during that uh, translunar injection burn? With his hand on the abort handle, and then the high-frequency vibrations that he thought might tear up the ship, but he still didn't twist the handle. I call that nerves of steel. In Stafford's mind, Apollo 10 was going to the moon, or it was going to blow up. There was no turning back. Now, I often wonder, if I had been there, in that position, (laughs) I might have activated that abort. There's a good chance that I might have done that. (laughs) It's hard to say, but I think Stafford made the right choice. Did you catch the part when they were docking? And out of nowhere, Gordon Cooper chimes in with, Who's that guy on the front porch of the limb? (laughs) And the response was, It's a green man, Gordo. And I thought that was pretty funny. That was pretty good. Now, I have a little bonus material for this episode. During a lull in the space activity, Walter Cronkite got to talk with Arthur C. Clarke again. And here's the clip for that.
1: Arthur C. Clark, man I'm proud to call my friend and a fellow who have, all of you space buffs have read uh, from uh, long before the days when we put our first man into suborbital flight, uh, dreaming and projecting uh, the days when man would be flying uh, around the world in spaceships as one of the world's great science writers. Arthur, uh, when did you write your first uh, science fiction piece about uh, space flight, rocket flight?
6: Well, I... Worked out this morning. It's about 35 years ago. 35 years ago. I think I sold my first articles on space flight around about 1936. Now, I've, I've heard uh, you
1: fellows who do this and do it so brilliantly talk about uh, some of the art in your craft and some of your fellow colleagues who write it. And I, I know that you consider that there are sort of rules of the game, an ethical rule that that for good science fiction, it's got to be scientifically possible and
6: scientifically accurate. Well, as here you're getting the old argument of what is the difference between science fiction and fantasy, and no one's ever decided exactly where the dividing line is because um, even things which at one time seemed to be fantasy have become science fiction. I've got a sort of working definition that if it uh, could possibly happen, then it's science fiction. If it couldn't possibly happen, and it's fantasy, perhaps the best known example of fantasy are Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. They're really f- fairy tales. But if it's science fiction, it must have a basis in known fact or extrapolated fact, possible facts.
1: Well, how can you say what are facts, though, uh, If it, it seems to me that man has to project his knowledge beyond what he even knows today. I mean, we say that something is possible, but that's only because it's possible within our own... Can
6: uh, at this moment? That's true. The outer the limits we can never be sure of, but one can look ahead of, of what we're doing now and say, well, obviously, if you've done this, then in a few years we're able to do so and so. This is the position of space flight uh, ten or twenty years ago. The theoretical basis was there. We knew it was only a matter of time that if these ideas were exploited, that we could go to the moon and the planets. And now we are seeing the proof of this. Speaking
1: of going to the planets beyond, uh, beyond the moon, we are now quite sure, thanks to our unmanned uh, tours of the moon with Surveyor and, uh, and lunar orbiters and the, and the Russians, experience in their unmanned flights, and now man has eyeballed it with Frank Borman's Apollo 8 flight, and these fellows will on Wednesday. Uh, we know that it makes pretty much what we expected
6: it to be. It really, there haven't been any surprises yet. No, there no, but there will be. I mean, we have a, a whole world here as big as Africa. It took us a long time to explore Africa. We've just looked at the surface. When we start digging, when we start really exploring, we're going to have many surprises. This is inevitable. Let's talk a minute about uh,
1: one anomaly which has showed up uh, that I don't know whether it was forecast in advance. It may very well have been, and I'm just simply not aware of it. I don't pretend to be uh, a scientist in this matter. a matter of fact, my, my, uh, my freshman uh, physics teacher, uh, I'm sure, is called Whirling Charlie today <laughs> over the idea that I'd even be, su- even be talking to you about such a subject when I couldn't figure out how a pulley works. But the, uh, uh, and I decided not to be a mining engineer because of that. But the, uh, 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 did we have any idea about these mass cons before that? And let me say what they are first for those who may not be uh, even as acquainted as uh, I with my limited knowledge. They are mass concentrations, mass concentrations of something uh, which seems to have a magnetic effect of some type. Gravitational. Uh, yeah. On the, uh, uh, the flight of the unmanned and even the Apollo 8. Uh, at 69 miles altitude around the moon has been affected by something in the moon's surface so that it is almost a kind of a a bumpy flight, a 5 or 10 foot, now that's not very much, at 69 mile height uh, difference uh, as they pass around in, in the moon's orbit. And the theory is that these are masses of something below the surface, uh, prob- possibly iron deposits, I gather, brought there either by residue in the, the seas, if they were seas, or perhaps meteorites uh, impacting on the moon, burying themselves, that are causing a magnetic uh, effect of some kind. I gather it's as if you were walking with uh, lead shoes acro- or, or steel shoes on across, a, uh, across a surface that have magnets in it. Is that the idea? Well, uh,
6: it's not actually a magnetic effect. It's a, it's a gravity effect. And, the peop- and the, in the spaceship, you wouldn't feel anything, but in fact, when you analyze the orbit of the spacecraft, you find that instead of being a perfectly smooth ellipse, there are these slight deviations, which uh, are important from the navigational point of view, obviously, and therefore, we have to analyze them. And the discovery of these um, concentrations of matter, mass cons, it is of great importance because it will throw light on the origin of the moon. And the same things occur on the Earth. The Earth's gravitational field is not absolutely uniform. Now, these may be due to heavy deposits of, of ores, for example. The obvious uh, idea is they could be very large meteorites that made the so-called seas on the moon. Because. Of
0: okay, that was about where the interview ended. I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive six donations to support the podcast over the past week. Kevin P. from Florida donated at the Apollo level. Rich M. from Virginia donated at the Gemini level and earned the satellite emoji. Mark W. from California donated at the Mercury level. Robert M., from Texas donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Akim D. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. And Galen A. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji. That brings the Patreon total to 88 for this year with a goal of reaching 150. And the overall total has reached 93 with a goal of reaching 300 donors by the end of the year. To make a one-time donation, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button. Or you can sign up with Patreon by clicking on the Patreon link. As promised last week, we're going to name the 80 Patreons that continued their donation into 2017 and got their coveted rocket-treasured-moon or sought-after-satellite emoji. (laughs) As a special treat... Mrs. Space Rocket History is going to call out the list.
7: At the Orion level, William A. earned the moon emoji. John B. Rocket. Nick G. Rocket. George L. Moon. Florian R. Moon. Peter S. Moon. At the Mir level, Paul G. earned his satellite emoji. At the shuttle level, Phil J. earned his moon emoji. And Scott M. earned his rocket emoji. At the Salyut Skylab level, we have Robert L. earning his rocket emoji. At the Apollo level, Brent M. Satellite. Colm A. Rocket. J. A. Rocket. Scott B. Moon. Carmen C. Rocket. Neil C. Moon. Harold D. Rocket. Nicholas D. Moon. Henry E. Rocket. David F. Rocket. John G. Moon. John G. R. Rocket. Joe H. Rocket, Eric H. Moon, Johan L. Moon, Justin M. Rocket, Joe P. Rocket, Karsten P. Moon, Andrew R. Rocket, Guido T. Satellite, Dane U. Moon, P.J. Ward Rocket, Tyler W. Rocket, and Henry Z. Rocket. At the Gemini level, we have Greg B earning his Moon emoji, Alan C. Satellite. Andre I, Rocket, Richard L, Rocket, Brandon W, Rocket, and Simeon N, Rocket. At the Soyuz level, we have George B, earning his rocket emoji, Peter F, Rocket, Alex G, Rocket, Mylon J, Rocket, Benjamin R, Rocket, Niels R, Satellite, Michael S, Rocket. At the Mercury level, we have Matt B, Rocket, Eric B, Rocket, Ronald B, Satellite, Ron B, Moon Patrick C. Rocket, Kevin C. Rocket, Tom C. Rocket, Mike F. Rocket, Mike H. Moon, Mark L. Rocket, Grant M. Moon, Don P. Rocket, and David R. Rocket. At the Vostok level, we have Julio A. Moon, Victor A. Rocket, Chris B. Moon, Brian B. Rocket, Merrick B. Rocket, John C. Rocket, Maxwell C. Rocket, Andy C. Moon, D. Kevin C. Moon, Charlotte D. Moon, Matthew D. Rocket, Jeff D. Rocket, Ben D. Moon, William D. Rocket, John F. Rocket, Flossen Rocket, George H. Rocket, Damian L. Satellite, Michelle H. Rocket, Robin P. Moon, Daniel P. Rocket, and Troy W. Rocket.
0: Thank you, Mrs. Space Rocket History, for reading that list. I was pleased to see the podcast received two new five-star ratings on iTunes over the last couple of weeks. I'd like to thank Atomic Bovine and Krusty Old Sea Dog for the kind review and the all-important five-star rating. I really appreciate you taking time to do that. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so, like my retweeters, I'll recognize you all at the end of the month. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoy that episode. Next week, we will continue with Apollo 10. In podcast news, we had a great year in 2016. It was the highest number of downloads in the four years the podcast has been operating. In 2016... The podcast was heard in 159 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most downloads for the year 2016. Number one, US. Number two, Germany. Number three, UK, following very close behind Germany. Number four, Australia. Number five, Canada, which is also following very close behind Australia. Number 6, France. Number 7, Japan. Number 8, Sweden. Number 9, New Zealand. And 10, Netherlands. One more statistic you might be interested in. This is called the Top 10 Platforms Used to Listen to the Podcast for the Year 2016. First is iOS, either iPhone or iPad. Second is Windows. Third is Android. Android. Fourth is Macintosh. Fifth is called Bots and Web Crawlers. Sixth is Multi Platform. Seven is Linux. Eight is Symbian. Nine is Chromebook OS. And ten is Blackberry. Hmm. Okay, last week I mentioned that the podcast is approaching a major milestone. I don't want to say what it is until we reach it, but this week it got a lot closer. If you're following on Twitter or Facebook, you will be the first to find out what it is. So go to the homepage and click on the Twitter or Facebook links to follow. That's all I want to say about it right now. Okay, that's about all the time I have for this week. I will try to get episode
7: 193 up by next Thursday. So long for now.